0: As a church, we get a lot of calls this time of year um, for people who are in need. And whether they need food, whether they need whatever, just just needs in general. And if you would like to, we usually, we have a fund, uh, a benevolence fund that we help people out. But if you would like to give to that fund throughout this Christmas season, you can just pop a check into the joy box, just put on the bottom um, benevolence fund or elders fund or whatever. And we will make sure that those Um, that money is used to buy gift cards to different kinds of stores and things like that for people who are in need who have called us and contacted us so that's something that we do as a church Um, it's kind of a quiet way to give back you're not going to get any kudos for that but um, you know the return in heaven is great though you don't have to work for the return in heaven never mind (laughs) Um, let me pray and we'll get going here God I want to thank you for your grace and mercy Thank you for your love for us. Lord, I pray that we would be always thankful every day for what you give us, for the blessings that you pour out on us, for each step that we can take, for each breath that we can take. It is truly a gift from you. We thank you for that. Lord, as we enter into Advent, this season of waiting, the season of expectation, I pray that our hearts would be focused on you, Lord Jesus, and that you would reflect, we would reflect back into the world who we are in Christ, in you. Lord, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So last week we started, uh, I I introduced this idea of the Advent Conspiracy written by uh, a bunch of pastors out on the West Coast a bunch of years ago. And it kind of brings Advent into a a different kind of focus. It focuses on um, uh, worshiping fully, spending less Giving more and loving all people. And so we kind of, I kind of set that whole thing up last week a little bit, how we want to push back against this consumeristic mentality that Christmas seems to have uh, fallen into I was reading an article in the New York Times about um, Thursday or, Christ, or Thanksgiving Day and going into Black Friday, and uh, one woman was interviewed, and she, was, she just bought this big 60 inch TV and that uh, she got it for a really good deal she 's never seen deals like that on sixty inch TVs before, and so she was speaking and, and i don 't know how the, the question came about, but um, sh- this was her quote. The TV that I bought last year is in perfect condition, and it's wonderful, but this one is just bigger and better. And so she got herself a new uh, Christmas TV. And if you continue to read these articles about Christmas and and, um, Black Friday and this consumeristic push you will see that there's now something called self-gifting that the marketers are, are are pinpointing. So instead of you just going out and buying gifts for other people, you all deserve to buy yourself something very nice and lovely in the sales. And so there's actually a marketing plan in place with major companies and retailers that will get you to buy something for yourself. This woman bought herself a 60-inch TV because her... 59 and a half inch TV wasn't good enough anymore. and This one was bigger and better. And so we just want to, we want to just kind of posture ourselves to kind of push back against that just a little bit. Now, remember I said that we don't want to be sanctimonious jerks. This is not about us just stomping our feet saying, it's, it's Merry Christmas, it's not Happy Holidays, we ain't getting nobody no gifts, we ain't hanging any lights, we have poo-poo on all of the Christmas stuff. That's, that's not what we're asking We're asking that we would be the light of Jesus Christ during a time when it seems so dark and black in the world. And so within our cultural context, how can we be the light? So this morning we were going to talk about this idea of worship, to worship fully, now worship's that word we just kinda of throw around out there all the time and, and uh, you know we, we I think I think and it's our fault as as church world, we have we have kind of categorized it to just like music. So I, this morning, was the worship leader, and I led the worship team, and the worship team led you all in worship, and then it's over, and then the instruments go down, and worship is over, and then we have some announcements, and sometimes in our community, we pray for people a little bit, and then we go into the teaching or, you know, the sermon, and then we're, we're gone. Now, many of us would know that worship is not just about music but it's, it's, it's much more. It's the way that we do things, the way that we live our life. In fact, I would even say more important, worship is the posture of our heart. And so how we're living, the things we're doing, if, if we're focused on God, if we're looking to bring glory to the Father, with our actions, with our words, with, our, with our, the things that we are doing, then, then we are living a life of worship. That our lives, the things that we do, are acts of worship when done for the glory of God. But all too often we kind of just, we kind of, um, we, we, put, we put church world as the, as the worship time and life is, is life. And so we come in here in this building, this church building, and this is where worship takes place. And this is where we do the singing. And okay, I get that the sermon could also be a little bit of worship there too if, if it affects you in some enlightening way. Maybe, maybe you go out and you live a little different and that is your act of worship. And, and then, and so it's built in, and it's based around this religious activity these religious traditions that we have here. And then you leave here and you go out into the world and that's where life takes place. And there's this, there's this separation. Well, let me, let me gum up the works for you a little bit here. Religious activity does not necessarily mean you are worshiping. You could walk through this door lift your hands, sing the songs, listen to me, and still not engage in biblical worship. Because worship is something that's an interior posture of our hearts. And it's a condition of our heart that we as as humanity, as humans, have ebbed and flowed through from the the beginning of time. Look at these verses in Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter one. The word of the Lord. I can't read that first, but anyway. Hear Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, listen to the instruction of our God, of you people of Gomorrah, the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls, and lambs and goats, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed feasts I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. And then on Isaiah 58, God says this. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? You might see that God's a little upset with some people. And and he's kind of laying down a, a holy spanking here and and see what what has happened is that his word that his teachings all it's been all it's been set to mean in these people's lives is that they need to fill some ritualistic tradition that there's motions that need to be gone through and then things are going to be all right and and these motions have little love or a very little respect towards the one that, is, that, that they're supposed to be directed to, because that's what worship is at its very ground level. Worship is, is a posture of showing love or respect or assigning something worth. And there's very little of that going on from these people toward God. And God's, God's teachings are not just some legalistic prescription for righteousness. God's teachings are about the inner man, the inner woman. It's about character. It's about intimacy. It's about relationship. It's the condition of your heart. Now, the attitude of your heart can be expressed in in the symbolism of ceremony and tradition. But ceremony and tradition cannot replace a proper attitude of your heart it seems all through history, religion has a way of focusing on the physical and the external, while minimizing the internal and the and the, and the preciousness and the sacredness of of a relationship with God. Bless you. And I think it's because we're, we're able we're able to measure our church attendance. We're able to measure how many Bible studies we've gone to. We're able to measure how many chapters and verses we've read or how much we have memorized. We can measure our prayer time and and how how many minutes or how many hours we've spent in quiet time. But how do you measure loving God with everything that you have? How do you measure loving your neighbor as yourself? It's more difficult, and we don't, we don't like those things that, that we can't quantify, and so, so we just like the measurable stuff over here. Well, I haven't missed church in, in weeks, in years, but it's external, and God is more interested in the internal. And what's happening in the first chapter of Isaiah, these people are taking part in this, this cultic practice of, I guess we can call it something like transference. And so the people, they would buy an animal, and that animal would become their sin. And then they would kill that animal, and then their sin would be gone, just like that. And there's no need for any repentance. There's no need for any heart change. There's no need for any interior work to take place. You just bought the animal, you killed the animal, put your sin on the animal, and then there, it, was, it was gone. Now, God had instituted something like that way back when with the scapegoat, but it was, it was a condition of the heart that God was interested in and not just going through the motions. It was almost a form of indulgence. The bigger the animal that you bought, the more sin you can dump on that animal. And then when you killed it, everything was good. And you can just go on living the way you've always been living. There had to be no change. As long as the ceremony was followed correctly, then the blessing would come. And you would be forgiven. So numbers really mattered. How many sacrifices, how many prayers, how much incense, how big the animal was, what kind of animal it was it? Those, all those things, all those external things mattered, but nothing mattered in the heart. You could just go through the motions and think that you were fine. Israel is playing church, and God is not fooled. God knows what's in our hearts. This text out of Isaiah 58, the people are fasting. And they're pretty aggravated with God because they're fasting. And if you've fasted, you know that, that it's not most, it's not an, I don't like to fast. I get crabby when I fast. And then the spirituality just seems to wane from me because all I can think about is food. And so fasting isn't easy. And these people are fasting and guess what? They're going through the motions of it. And they're mad at God because God isn't doing what God said He should be doing or what they think He should be doing. He's ignoring them in their fasting and they're a little bit upset with Him because they're going through all of this external stuff but there's nothing inside them that's changing. And they expect God just because they're going through the actions, they're going through the motions, that God better show up and do what God is supposed to do. Their hearts are far from Him. And so I was thinking through that and I had to ask myself the question, well, a heart that's far from God, whether you sit here or you sit in front of the TV today watching a football game, if your heart is far from God, does that manifest itself in some type of external activity or the way you live? And I would say it does. You see, these people, God has brought charge against them for the way that they're treating other people. their heart condition is coming out in the way that they're living. In fact, God is so just fed up with their religious activity that he says it's become a burden to him. When religion, when our religious expressions become an excuse that we use to live outside of God's rhythm and harmony, we are in deep trouble. We are in deep trouble. And this is what God is going to tell them. Isaiah 1. This is the Lord speaking to the people. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And Then Isaiah 58 If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your nights will become like noonday. Chapter uh, chapter 2 in the book of James speaks about the same idea that a heart of faith, a heart that holds true faith, is a heart of action, and it expresses that faith in real ways. God is not a complex, God has revealed himself to us in a very simplistic way. I mean, God is complex beyond what we can ever imagine, but he is, he is, he is given to us his revelation, and, and we can understand it, and we could actually get a hold of it. And what God is telling these people is, y'all need to start accepting, and, and he, can, he created the Southern Draw, so he could use that. And y'all better, you need to accept responsibility for your life. Examine what's on the inside. Examine your hearts. Examine the way that you're, that you're treating other people. Because what's inside of us is a reflection of how we walk through this world. People, These people are seeing religion as something that's done for them and something that's done to them. And they're missing the very truth of God. That faith is a way of responding to the revelation that God has for us. Faith, faith is a way that we respond to the transforming power of his grace. And so if there is not a response to that, maybe we can say that we have yet to be transformed by it. Just just ceremony and religion and tradition, it puts, it puts God in the past. It makes him very manageable. It makes him person-centered. And when God becomes manageable and people-centered, then we miss out on a deep, sacred, intimate relationship with the sovereign God. And that's what he calls us to. That's what he wants of us. And so worship is a condition of our hearts. It's a condition of what's going on inside. The object of our affections will be what we worship. The object of our affections will be what we worship. Now let's kind of, let's kind of, hone this down a little bit, I'll ask a quick question. What should be the object of our affection or the object of our worship during this time of Advent? Anyone? You can say it out loud. Go ahead. Jesus. Jesus. That's a great Sunday school answer. It's the right answer. But is that is what truly is in your heart? Is that what's what's your motivating factor? Is that the what's in my heart answer? How we spend our time in our energy in our resources during this time of year will show what our focus really is, if it's on Christ or if it's in some other selfish genre that we choose to spend our energy, time and our resources. We all know the spiritual significance of this time of year, but just because we know something doesn't make it the truth that we're walking in. And doing the interior work of examining our hearts, it's a little bit scary, isn't it? Thank you. And you know why it's scary? It's, it's, it's not scary because you're afraid of what you might find. It's scary because you know exactly what you're going to find. And, it's, and, it's, and it can be pretty ugly. And as long as, that, as long as that ugliness stays deep down inside where nobody can see it and it doesn't, it doesn't rear its ugly head, then we're safe. And we can give those very pat Sunday school answers. And we can play by the religious rules and we can look good on the outside. But worship is not about the outside. It begins on the inside. See, Christmas is a time of year when when worshiping Jesus, man, that should be a slam dunk. It, it, it should be that easy. And, and during Advent, we're we're invited into the deeper mysteries of faith. God revealing Himself in all of creation, and He's showing and He's teaching and He's and He's redeeming. I mean Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, walked this earth to show us what it means and what it looks like to walk with God. That's what the Christmas story is about. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't boil up a, a sense of worship inside of you, then you need to do some interior work and examine your heart. Those in the first Christmas story The response was a response of worship. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, the three magi, they responded with worship. Mary, the son of Jesus, teenage, unwed, poor, peasant girl living in a small town. Nothing socially significant about her or her family. One day the angel Gabriel, he's like the head honcho of angels. He's the big man on campus. He shows up and says, Mary, you found favor in God's eyes. You're gonna have a baby. Name him Jesus. And and Mary, you know, there's a little like, uh, really? Really? How's that going to happen? And he kind of, he tells her how it's all going to go down. And then later on, he goes to, she goes to visit her, her cousin, Elizabeth, who is pregnant. And Elizabeth feels her baby jump for joy in the presence of Mary. And Elizabeth says, blessed are you, Mary. And blessed is this child that you're carrying. And this is Mary's response. my Savior, do you hear the heart of Mary? You, do you hear, this is her interior life. Deep down within her, her soul is rejoicing. She's magnifying God. She understands who she is before him. She's, she's humbled himself before God. That he would choose her for this amazing, amazing thing that's about to happen. The Savior of the world is coming through her. God chose her. He chose the humble. He chooses the humble. He notices those who seem to be unnoticeable. He sees the true status of those who may not have any status. And then she continues on. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent to, sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. She's moved from this personal worship to to recognizing what God is doing on a, on a global level, what he's accomplishing in the world, scatters the proud, brings the powerful down, sends the rich away empty. Those are scary statements. Those, those should cause a little tension in us. Now, opponents to the heart of God and to the heart of Jesus are the people who will grasp and demand power and status, and social uh, social positions, and honor. They're the people that that exclude others. They marginalize other people so they can get what they want, so they can build themselves up. They will exclude the poor from the basic dignities of human life to make sure that their own comforts are taken care of. When power power and privilege is used selfishly, The consequence is oppression. Somebody is oppressed. Somebody will have less. So others can get more. But Mary sees the true nature of God, a God who gives of himself, a God who embraces people in an intimacy of relationship. So if these things are at the heart of God, if this is if, if he 's coming alongside those who have less, if he 's coming alongside those who have been marginalized, then should it be that our worship or our hearts, we, the culturally rich and powerful, let 's be honest, we are You can go to uh, a website and you can plug in your salary and it will tell you where you rank in the world of the most wealthy people now you can all check my salary it's online in our financial statements and you can know what i make and you can plug in my salary it's not a lot but we live we live well comfortably and i am in the top 1% of the people in the world as far as salary 1% of the people in the world at $60,000. And so, if that's God's heart to come alongside those that have less, that are poor, that are marginalized, then can or should our hearts and part of our worship be the same heart of God that we too would come alongside those with less. I don't believe that these things can can be just an afterthought for a faith community because they're not just about going and doing, it's about worship. And we, we, we are here to worship God. And yes, we're here to, to shine the light of Christ back into the world, but, but our lives, we've been created to worship God. And if that's part of who God is, then should it be a part of who we are? Justice and mercy, they're not just add-ons or consequences of worship. Justice and mercy in in and of themselves are an act of worship. Joseph is Mary's husband, husband husband-to-be. And Joe finds out that Mary's pregnant. And they're not married yet. And that's, that's really not cool. Could you imagine finding out your fiance is pregnant and you are not the father? And then have her say, oh, but Joe, it was the Holy Spirit. That would not fly then as it probably wouldn't fly today. But the scriptures tell us that Joseph is a righteous man. He's a good man. And he decides to keep things quiet And he's not going to embarrass Mary. He's going to divorce her quietly. And then comes the dream. But after he considered this, Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. God is about to enter into this world and save the world from sin. He enters into brokenness and pain and hurt, and his mission is to heal and to restore. Joseph realizes in this moment that Mary is telling the truth. Christmas should be a time for us to remember that God has sent Jesus into the world to save the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. The the offering is to everyone. Reconciliation is needed by all of us. And reconciliation only comes from Jesus Christ, knowing him, walking with him. Jesus is the way that we are forgiven. Jesus is the way that we are reconciled. And we all need it, even when we're saved. We all still need to be saved from ourselves, saved from our our pride and our self-centeredness, saved from our own idolatries, saved from our own darkened hearts. And that's what Jesus is in the business of doing. I wonder, I wonder if that we, who have been kicking around church for a long time, I wonder if we have grown bored with this idea of Emmanuel. We've grown bored with God with us. Because if God is not making a difference in our own lives, Then, how can we live in such a way that makes a difference in the world? And so, Joe, in the face of ridicule, with the chance of looking stupid and like a fool in front of his friends and his family, this woman is pregnant and she's your fiance, you're not even married, with the risk of looking very foolish, he chooses to obey God. He takes Mary as his wife and will raise Jesus as his own. You know when we talk about in the Christmas season of spending less and giving more, it sounds a little it sounds a little weird. It sounds a little like spend less, give more eh. and and it's, sometimes it's hard to get our minds around that. It can be it's, it could be it seem a little bit off. And what would people think? What would people think if you pushed back against the tide of consumerism and we would embrace, as individuals and as a community a biblical idea of Christmas? What would people think? What would friends and family who don't attend church think? What would it look like that we would use our time and our resources to help the oppressed and the poor and the sick and the forgotten? What would it look like if we used our holiday resources and our energies and our time to help those who are in need, those who have less? Joseph's, Joseph, his act of obedience was his act of worship. Can our acts of obedience to the heart of God be our act of worship? Worship. of my favorite parts of the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophets have written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them, And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. I love this story because this, these, these guys are academics. They're smart, learned people. Academics searching for the king And they go to Herod, who is a very violent man. He's a violent king. And they ask him, the king, where this king is. Where is the new king? Two kingdoms are about to collide, two kings are about to be at odds. And now we know who is going to win. But at this point in the story, these two kings are about to bump heads. And one of these kings, he will control through financial strength and military power and violence and the latest technologies of the day. And the other king and the other kingdom is is revealed through vulnerability and humility and solidarity with the poor and the oppressed through sacrifice. Two very different kings, two very different kingdoms, two very different worlds and when the magi come to the house of Jesus, they bow down and they worship. And it's, 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 it's a no games type of thing. They're not playing games. They're not doing anything for show. They bow down and they worship. This journey that they've been on to find Jesus could have gotten them killed by King Herod. You don't go to a king and ask the king where the new king is. There's this awakening in their spirits, a rebirth in their hearts for worship. They caught a glimpse of the king and they risked everything, risked everything to worship him. When they went to King Herod, they confronted face-to-face a world system, the world system of their day. And they chose and they decided that not to go and worship would have Would have cost far more than the potential cost of going and worshiping the newborn king. And so they went, risking everything. What if we were willing to risk everything to truly worship Jesus Christ as king? But you see, again, we have to be very careful. This is not about you going, me going through the motions. The prayer has to begin with, God, change my heart. God, change my heart. And as you allow him in, and as you do the interior work of examining your own heart and praying that he would take that out, that he would remove that, that he would file down those edges, that he would just pour that pure light into your heart, and then worship can well up from within you. Can Christmas still change the world? I believe it can when the church understands what worship is. Then, as Isaiah wrote, if you do away with the yoke of oppression and pointing the finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your lights will rise in the darkness, and your nights will become like noonday. As we think through this idea, and as we prepare to come to the table this morning on Christmas Eve, this is what I would like us to do if you're coming. There's a ministry that takes place here at the church. It's the ministry that Chris Apollo began, and it's called Charlotte's Web. And what Charlotte's Web does is it helps families with terminally ill children. And the ministry pays for bills, pays their rent, uh, purchases Christmas presents for the kids that families can't. These families are away from home many times, yeah. Ronald McDonald House. And so on Christmas Eve, as and I'll keep reminding you of this, I would like to take this idea of, of coming alongside the oppressed and we're gonna take a collection for Charlotte's Web. And everything that we get on Christmas Eve, everything that goes in that box will be given to that ministry. And so that, that blessing can continue. And so that's, what we kind of, that's, that's our response to this. But don't let that be your only response. If God puts something on your heart to do or to, to say or to give, then please do it. Let your light shine into the darkness. And as we come to this table, this table, for us, it is an act of worship, because we are going to remember what Christ did for us, that He has brought ultimate healing. And so as you come forward this morning, Maybe your internal dialogue with the Holy Spirit is, please change me that I may know how to worship fully. You can come when you're ready and then we will take communion together. As On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks and praise, and he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, Take this, all of you, and eat this, for this is my body that has been broken for you. Then he took the cup, and again he gave thanks and praise and gave the cup to his disciples and said, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is a cup of my blood, a new and everlasting covenant is shed for all people. And do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, I would ask that you would, that you would send your Holy Spirit in a powerful, life-changing way to your church. I pray that we would no longer ignore the prompting of the Spirit, but that we would embrace it as life and light and joy. Holy Spirit, change our hearts and teach us what it means to worship and how we live this worship every day, how we can bring light into a darkened world, how we can love, how we can bring joy, how we can reflect the heart of God back into the world. Thank you that you love us in spite of us. Thank you for the gift of the celebration of Christmas. And it's in the name of Jesus that we all pray. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.